We would like, if we may, to take you on a strange journey. We are going time traveling this week, all the way back to the 1960s, before one of us was born, (laughs) to us focus on five of our favorite horror movies from that decade. Welcome to the Fright Club podcast. I'm Hope Madden. And I'm George Wolf, and we're from madwolf.com. And yeah, this is going to be fun. We thought we would go back and, uh, and take a look at some of the movies from that decade, the 1960s, and find not only some great movies that stand alone, but, uh, but movies that really influenced some of today's horror movies and, and, uh, or influenced movies throughout the, the years. And we're going to do this for the next few weeks, actually. Next week we'll look at the 70s and the 80s and 90s and then the, the more modern horror films. But the reason we started with the 60s is that uh, you know the 30s obviously launched the monster movie. The 20s had some of the great, uh, you know, German films. and uh, But by the 50s, it was kind of schlocky, a lot of atomic uh, monsters and stuff. <laughs> For us, the 1960s really changed the direction of horror movies. And so that was why we wanted to start there. And there's a lot that we leave off, obviously. We're just talking about five movies across an entire decade. So, you know, Mario Bava was incredibly influential in his films, especially my favorite is Black Sunday. Those are all 60s films. Um, Hitchcock had a couple that we're not going to talk about. And then all of the great Vincent Price films like uh, Mask of the Red Death. And then probably the worst that we're going to leave off. So we're going to apologize in advance. All of the Hammer, Christopher Lee, Dracula movies, <laughs> though I do love those. And I love Christopher Lee as Dracula. But we're not going to we're not going to touch on this because we really just we, we choose five standalone excellent films that we believe are the five best horror films of the decade. Christopher Lee, quite an imposing Dracula. Indeed. Yeah, but uh, an imposing figure no matter what he's doing. But yeah, so those we're not looking at for kind of obvious reasons. They they a lot of times fall into their own genre. Yeah. You can say campy. Yeah. Hammy. We, all you really have to do for people to know is just say hammer films. Yeah. And then you know what we're talking about. So, all right, so we might as well start off right at the very beginning of the decade, 1960, with one that's... Um, Really, maybe, I don't know if I want to say a lot of people are aware of. Maybe not, but... Maybe not, but it is incredibly influential and really, really, really cool. It's called Eyes Without a Face. This one's a French movie from 1960 from uh, uh, French director Georges Franjou. And, of course, it features that great theme song from Billy Idol. (laughs) Actually, no, no, I think no, that it? might be. I think that might be the only disappointment. <laughs> is at no point is Billy Idol ride a motorcycle through stained glass. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, it's really a great movie. No, it's um, it you know, it, it's not the first ever. It so this film I think changed the trajectory of the mad scientist, mad doctor film. And you'll see. Uh, I mean, everything before that usually they're making big monsters. Um, and you'll see obviously beginning with Frankenstein, but you'll see that after this movie. They start doing things that are a little bit more intimate, a little bit more creepy, less monster, more uh, creepy, intimate. Um, and so what happens here is a, a, a world-famous surgeon's daughter has disfigured herself in a car accident. And basically, he is removing faces from other young women of the same age and trying to graft them onto his daughter Christine's face. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that make this movie work incredibly well. Mainly, it's it's uh, the performances, in, and you'll you'll see this same theme, like exactly this blueprint in a hundred other movies, where it's a, a doctor who's brilliant and can't see that in furthering his own research, he's doing something completely immoral, and he's twisted into doing this because of a love of someone in his family who's damaged, but also just uh, it's opportunistic. He wants to be able to to have an excuse to further his research, and in almost every case, there's. 
a rather handsome nurse helpmate who's just loyal and does whatever. And there's often a whole, as in this film, basement full of uh, victims and future victims. But for some reason in this particular film, it never seems lurid or tawdry. It's very, very creepy. And and I think another big, big reason for that are the visuals. It's just, it's this beautiful black and white film. It's visually stunning. And then Edith Scobb is the name of the, the actress who plays Christiane. She's got this, you know, blank white mask on her face. And she kind of looks to me a yeah. lot like um, Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby. Just very, just waif-like, very thin with this little boyish haircut. But And, and even, the, even though it's a very simple mask, it's a creepy mask. It is. So she just looks so haunted and haunting. And she just flits around the periphery of the whole film. And, and it, it has such an incredible effect on the whole movie. Because without her and this macabre but still really tender performance it's just sort of awful sort of horrifying the movie but then when she's there it's just so bittersweet and sad it's and it's so cool to look at but then again it's not one of those just classy early horror films either i mean there's some really kind of gross surgery going on that, yeah. that they show it's really ahead of its time and you talk about it being intimate in in a way you can see how this was an intimate offshoot of going back to those, uh, the type of monster movies that came out of the uh, paranoia over nuclear bombs and experiments and science, that was on a global scale. Sure. It unleashes monsters like Godzilla. You can see how this was, in a way, that same type of theme, but making it more intimate just on people. Yeah. And, and um, also maybe the beginning of some of the body horror that we talked about last week with Cronenberg. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a, you know, it's just another, uh, it's just Frankenstein in a new direction, which is always, you know, horror always has a, a, a theme of, of a terror of science uh, ever since Dra- or Frankenstein. And, 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 and this the, takes it in a, in a really fascinating new direction. Yeah, and there are also very tense moments because when the police come and maybe they start to get on the trail of the doctor and because he's an esteemed doctor and he gives them a reason oh no it's this and that and they just take it at his word and go away yeah. and, and then oh they're not going to catch him no, uh, no exactly and the the actor's name is Pierre Brasseur and he is magnificent he's just he's just haughty enough you know he's just tender enough he does such a great job of of being what I think one of the reasons that it's so effective, a little bit believable, believable, like you buy it. He's there and there's a really great early scene where he's been called in to uh, identify a body because uh, the police in the town believe that his daughter perished in this car accident. So he's been called in to identify a body of a similar looking young woman, same age, who's naked in the river and doesn't have a face so they can't identify her and he goes in and he identifies the body as his daughter which we know already is not the case then he comes out and he walks past another old man sitting on a bench weeping because he was kind of half-heartedly hoping this was his missing daughter because now at least he would know where she was and of course we all know it was his missing daughter and it's just a very effective scene and it sets you up for who this character is the whole rest of the movie yeah and it's been very influential not only you could you could pick out uh, twilight zone episodes you know many tv shows but just a few years ago there was a movie that i really loved called the skin i live in it starred antonio banderas and it was directed by Almodovar. yes yeah, Pe- pedro Almodovar. it's the only close to horror movie he has ever made and it, it he's a great great director no matter what and this is really one we're seeking out yeah and it's really close to this and if you haven't seen it i don't really want to give away anything 
because there are some big twists in this movie, and it's it's really worth checking out from 2011 uh, called The Skin I Live In. And if you've seen both movies, you, you'll see how, boy, uh, it's so, so in, influenced by Eyes Without a Face. So uh, check out both of those if you can. And we're going to move on just one year later, one that I know is is one of your favorites from 1961. It's called The Innocence. We Boy, I do love this one. I love this movie. Um, and and uh, it's an adaptation of the Henry James novel Turn of the Screw, which has been adapted a million times. This is easily the best version. Easily the best version. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's such a foundational film. There are so many movies that are like this where the whole film depends on is the lead female character crazy or is something supernatural happening happening and no one believes her and and there are a million movies that are that are that take that premise some of them some of them do a great great job of it the others for example with Nicole Kidman or the orphanage which we loved mm-hmm. from a few years ago they you know but but none of them do it as none of them do it as well as the innocents and it's Deborah Kerr is perfect as the high strung governess and, and you know is is as she sort of you know moves into spinsterhood is she lost it or you know are the two little kids that she's nannying are they really in danger of being kidnapped by the spectral forces um oh my god it's such a great movie and it's so good looking it's just um one that 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 really treads on your imagination you know that that requires you to fill in the gaps but it's never dull it's never boring it's it's so well written obviously it's um and and uh, and yeah, I just can't say enough about the Deborah Carr performance. Yeah, and I, I got to be honest, I don't like it as much as you do. I, I recognize it for its significance, but it's funny if you go on and do any sort of research about it and start looking up, you really see how how often people that you've heard of or just random people will name it as their favorite horror movie ever. I mean, it really strikes a chord with a lot of people. And needless to say, it's from 1961, so it's not blood and guts by any stretch of the imagination. It's more, you know, in a window behind Deborah Kerr, there's a face and pops up and then it's gone and, th- and things like that. So it can be very creepy. And of course, it's gothic, you know, the, mm-hmm. the scene, the, the architecture, that type of thing, like a governess, you know, and, and the kids that, that she's in charge of. It's, it's all, and there's something a little always ghost story, you know, uh, related about gothic scenes and gothic sets and those big houses and mansions and wide open fields and things like that. And so it plays on that. And as you said, the, the, the point of view uh, that the audience has to decide of the whether she's crazy or mm-hmm. something going on here can be can be really effective. But and I, I think it does a great job of tapping into, you know, the the tales of the, you know, of the, the dead former governess and her lover. And, <laughs> and what is it about those stories that are that, you know, the Deborah Kerr character is so obsessed with those stories. And yet she's turning away from those stories because they're so impure. On the other hand, as she's. You know, hovering over, I don't know how old she would have been in the 1960s, but the, the idea that she may never be with the man. She may be a spinster the rest of her life. And so it's sort of this, you know, primal, uh, she, she wants to be fascinated by it, but then again, she doesn't want to. And so she's, is she just making up the story that there are ghosts there? And, and I love to the rest of the staff. They're all very like, 
no, there's no ghosts here. But those dead people did terrible things. But no, there's no ghosts here. Um, and I think the other thing that makes it work out so well are the the, uh, the little kids, the kids who play, you know, um, they, the, her charges are, especially the boy, super <laughs> creepy. Like <laughs> adorable are. with their little chubby faces and yet super, super creepy. And their voices. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this one, we, we can point out a few films uh, since 1961 that have taken on the same theme. That you mentioned the others. That's from two thousand one with Nicole Kidman. Mm-hmm. Really well done. Yeah, really well done, and a nice twist at the end. Uh, if you if you go in blind, if you don't know what's going on, that's worth checking out. The Orphanage from two thousand seven, and that was um, directed by uh, or no, was it directed by Del Toro or no? Produced? It was produced by Del Toro. Yeah, uh, also very effective. Another one that's not by. By any means, uh, bloody or gory or anything like that, but it's creepy. It is really, really creepy, and it and it owes a lot to this movie. Yeah. Um, because again, one of the reasons that the orphanage works as well as it does, and it's magnificent, is because of how invested you are in the lead character and how and how the movie gives as much credit to the idea that there are ghosts there as it does to the idea that she's just crazy. But we want you to avoid the um, innocence sequel. Actually, Nightcomers. a prequel. Sorry, it was actually yeah. It it was ten years later in 1971. It was uh, supposed to be a prequel to Turn of the Screw or uh, The Innocents, and it's called The Nightcomers from 1971. So Marlon Brando stars, which might make you think, "Ooh, I should look at." You shouldn't. (laughs) It's one of those where somebody takes a, a a concept, and then so so basically they decided. Was it ghosts or was she crazy? Yeah. And then they created a prequel. And uh, and yeah. first of all, it's just stupid. And yeah. second of all, you don't want them. You don't want the decision made for you. Exactly. Exactly. So avoid that one. But Orphanage and the others are worth checking out, especially if you've already seen The Innocents. But if you haven't, please check that one out from 1961. Moving ahead now a few years, one that everybody's heard of if you haven't seen it, uh, the classic Rosemary's Baby. What have you done to it? done to its eyes he has his father's eyes what are you talking about guys eyes are normal what have you done to him you maniac satan is his father not guy <laughs> hail adrian hail satan he has his father's eyes <laughs> and that that group full of people in there <laughs> Ruth Gordon and all the... And she won just, an Oscar for that. Ruth yeah. Gordon won an Oscar for that. How great is they're that? They're just so creepy. It's one of the many creepy things and effective things about this movie. They've got their drinks, you know, their glasses, and it's just a party, and they're just, yeah, uh, they're just nuts. But you know what also I like about that scene is, if you notice, the husband, he stays in the background while she is going over to the baby and, and checking and, you know, having a breakdown and saying what... He's he's back in the back. He won't face her. He's, mm-hmm. His back is turned mm-hmm. while the group, the older group that are behind this are all partying. He's just, he won't come out, which is kind of interesting because it makes you think throughout the whole movie, although he was obviously a very willing participant in this plan, you know, what his thoughts are about it because he's not out there partying with the rest of them. No. Yeah, it's a, John Cassavetti's character is an interesting one. Um, he's just a, you know, he's just a lout. He's just a narcissist, would-be actor and, and you know, and um, not a good husband to begin with. And, and so it's, he's just, again, opportunistic. And it is interesting to watch the way he behaves when it's all over. But the movie, uh, you know, between Ruth Gordon and uh, Mia Farrow, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, one of the things I love about this movie is that Roman Polanski 
takes all of the glamour out of Satanism, which uh, all through the 60s, there were a million sort of black mass movies and they're all in robes and they're all gorgeous and there's all orgies. And, and then they're he ridiculous. Has them. Yeah, oh, they are. And he has them as these doddering old people, these just overly rused, you know, oh, and, and I love that. I love that about yeah, this Yeah, and he movie. wrote, because he wrote this, he directed, obviously, and he also wrote the screenplay, mm-hmm. which was adapted from the novel. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't read the novel, so... Th- you can always think that part of that was his shaping it, you know, the vision that he wanted that he wanted it to have, and it's very effective that way. It is. It's actually it's part of a trilogy that he did, along with uh, Repulsion and the Tenant of sort of, you know, uh, urban, you know, apartment dweller nightmares, and uh, Repulsion in particular, I really really like. But the easily the best of the three, easily the best of the three is Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, and we don't want to get off on a tangent about the the personal troubles of Roman Polanski, <laughs> no. but. That's a whole other conversation. But it reminds you, back then, even up until just his last, his last uh, movie that I saw, Venus in Fur, so good. He's, he's so talented. And uh, you kind of have to separate that sometimes. Be, be, because from of, the fact that he's a horrible human being. The, <laughs> a monstrous person. Yeah, so, you do. Um, yeah, and this movie uh, especially, because the way it sets up the slow, creeping dread, you know, where... You know what's going on, and and even the scenes where she's being quote unquote attacked. You know she's been drugged, and they just show you know the demon's eyes a little bit, and then she yells, you know, this is not a dream. Yeah. This is really happening, and and he makes it surreal enough um, where you don't want to show too much mm-hmm. because especially in nineteen sixty eight, you don't have CGI or anything like that. You can't. So he just showed showed enough and uh, and didn't show enough, which sometimes can be even more effective. Yeah, and uh, and again, Mia Farrow, especially once she's hugely pregnant, you know, it's it's she's just the vision of vulnerability. Yes. She's just because she is so little and she's so skinny in this movie, in this enormous belly, and she can barely get around, and she's sick all the time. Oh my God! I mean, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, a, a, a heroine who is more handicapped by her own her own body than than she is in this movie. It's it's a great performance. Yeah, and they of course always want her to just do nothing but go back to bed. Yeah, and they keep her drugged up. And yeah, that's very true. Uh, she's the, the epitome of someone who's who's helpless, which mm-hmm. is you know how they want it. But then at the very end, there in the clip, uh, it's it's. Really amusing how she's expected to just play along almost, you know, and while she's just screaming that they're all maniacs, and of course they are. But uh, and they played on that casting when uh, I think when she was cast as the nanny character in the remake of The Omen. Right. Remember that a few years ago? Absolutely. I mean, that was kind of an inspired bit of casting. Well, we're just going to flip the script here. Yeah, exactly. And and she to which I. To be honest, I don't think she was as effective in that role as Billy Whitelaw. She was not. In the original, because Billy Whitelaw was a freak uh, in the original Omen, uh, which was great. But I thought it was a nice bit of casting. I think, you know, about, back to Rosemary's Baby, I love all of the dark humor in it. And and, uh, I I don't think that Polanski would get he his humor works as often as it should in the films because it's done a handful that have that have the uh, oh. humor in them and, yeah. and it doesn't always it can be very work. dark as, uh, as well yeah. yeah but in this one i think and it's dark obviously the humor's dark but it's part of it is because so much of it is in the hands of the great uh ruth gordon uh it's just <laughs> magnificent you know the the funny bits are so uncomfortably funny so yeah always worth a look especially if you haven't ever seen it i would assume that you have but always work an, worth another look Rosemary's Baby baby from 1968. And hard to believe, in the exact same year, boy, talk about a double dip in the year 1968. You had great music that year, and you had great movies 
uh, one of our favorites, Night of the Living Dead. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the Living Dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! Ooh, it's a good one. And a groundbreaker. You know, I, I think there are going to be a lot of people who would say, you know what? Night of the Living Dead is better than Rosemary's Baby, but it started it all. And it, it is, actually. It is a great, great movie. And the Barbara, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Judith O.D., we met her, and yes. she's awesome. She was a pip. She was so <laughs> great. Uh, we met her at the Horror Hound Convention, what, three? Yeah, three, four three years, years ago, ago. Yeah. And she was great. Oh, she was so spunky. She was adorable. Just adorable, yeah. And uh, you got a picture with her, and she was talking about, you know, you don't have a whole lot of time when you're in those lines, but she took advantage of it she for did. a little conversation. And it was funny because the picture that you chose to mm-hmm. have her autograph, it had one of the other zombies in mm-hmm. it who she recognized and she when she went to autograph the picture what'd she say oh it's bob yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and then she wrote help me hope on there which is <laughs> yeah, great yeah, yeah so we she's loved great. her but that's not why we put it on the list we put it on the list because george romero's zombie epic just started everything there had been zombie movies before him but most of those were of the like haitian voodoo you know uh type and and he he really created the genre as we know it today they're dead you know they're back they're all messed up avoid right avoid (laughs) their mouths you know their bites make you become one of them all of those things none of those things existed before this movie they all started with with night of the living dead and then of course there was all of the political racial sexual tensions of the era well i was going to say that too let's not shortchange it because casting an african-american in the male lead oh yeah you know opposite a white woman. Yeah. That that was big stuff. Oh, it was, that was, oh, it was huge. That's groundbreaking. Oh, it was huge. Uh, because there were, as you say, some. there was unrest in almost every avenue of, of society in 1968. Right. And, and that was big. So it was groundbreaking not only in a horror film vein, but just in a societal vein where you could see an African-American not only as a male lead, but as a potential hero. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those people, all of those people would have died long before they did, were it not for Dwayne Jones. And then <laughs> and then, you know, uh, I mean, the whole film plays out really beautifully, but it's really it's really the montage over the closing credits where I think he gets the most political punch. It's brilliant and unnerving and just wonderfully done. And one of them, I mean, my favorite thing, I think throughout the there are some some fairly weak performances, but what goes on down the basement, super awesome, crazy, creepy. And then the whole News footage breaking the way that they're listening. I mean, the, the, the stuff that the news guy says, you know, oh, they're, you know, it's may. Ha- I mean, it, it's hilarious. The stuff that the news people say in the break-ins, but also then the way he treats the the news style montage at the end sort of brings it all home and makes it very, very creepy. But but I mean, like you, one of your favorite. Oh, they're dead. They're all messed up. That line. And then, well, you can light them on fire. They go right yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I uh, love that. In later movies, I think sometimes um, Romero's paranoia about about sort of the organized machine. I mean, in, in a lot of movies, it's basically you're 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 better off with the monsters than you are with the the militia or with the military yeah. or with the government. And that was born here. And I think for my money, he does a better job with it in this movie than he does in in uh, subsequent films. But, you know, for my money, he does a better job with almost everything in this movie than he does in subsequent films. I just think it is a masterpiece. Yeah. In very different ways all throughout the movie, there's uh, 
social comment yeah. uh, in all veins of it. So definitely not just a movie to be dismissed as a horror movie or to be dismissed as just something that was influential in horror movies. It was just a groundbreaking film in, in all sorts of ways oh and a God, classic for, for a very good reasons. Night of the Living Dead with our buddy Judith O'Day from 1968. <laughs> and we got to leave the best one for last, maybe the granddaddy from 1960. It's Psycho. Anyone at home? Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. It's not as if she were a, a maniac. She just goes a little mad sometimes. You know, even before I saw this movie, I can remember my mom years ago talking about how scared out of her wits she was when she saw this movie. And if you think about it in those terms back in 1960, boy, you can see why. At the, especially at the very end, when she goes down and turns that chair around. Oh, I bet people were just falling out of their chairs. It's hard, I think, to, to think of it sometimes in, in, with that perspective because so many movies have, have mimicked it since then. But when it came out, it broke ground in every possible way. And historically, you know, it's always been said that they, that they try to talk Hitchcock out of making this movie because it was a horror movie and because... Really big directors didn't do that. But this is, you know, the fact that one of the greatest directors working the day decided he was going to take on a clearly a horror movie was huge for the genre because it made it that that's one of the reasons I suppose that Roman Polanski could go ahead and do it later. I mean, it, it made it okay. Not only that, of course, he made one of the greatest horror films of all time in doing that. And it broke ground in ways I think people sometimes forget. You know, the the main character, uh, obviously, they kill her off in the first act. Mm-hmm. That had Nobody expected that to happen. Nobody it, thought, nobody thought she was going to die right. that soon into the film. But also, before this happens, Marion Crane, we've already shown that she uh, has premarital sex and she steals, steals money. money. Yeah. And yet she's still the sympathetic character. The film doesn't judge this character for that. That, oh my God, was groundbreaking in oh, yeah. 1960. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Janet Lee, huge star at the time, uh, no one's going to think that she's going to be cut out of the movie so fast. Oh, no. No, that was a huge shock. And of course, the shower scene itself was groundbreaking at the time. And pe- that's what people most remember. And for good reason, it's a great scene. But I think one of the reasons it had the impact that it did is because no one thought. This character was going to die this soon. Mm-hmm. They thought she would redeem herself in some way. They probably thought she was going to make it through the whole movie, and here she did. And then, but then, then you're lost. Then what? Well, our lead character is gone. Who's our lead character now? Well, the film suggests it's that awkward, sweet Norman Bates, <laughs> and that's yeah. how they pull the rug out from under you again. And then yeah. later on, when you start to suspect, I think Norman's not right in the head. Once you start to suspect it, the other who are the other characters? Right, Sam Loomis. And and the Vera Miles character, Lily Crane, Lila right. Crane, you don't like them, right? Right. That's intentional because Hitchcock wants you to identify with Norman Bates yep. the rest of the movie, and you do. And God help you when that when that when the car is in the water and not going all the way down, and the sheriff is mm-hmm. there, and you think he's going to get caught, you can't help but oh God, I hope that the water covers the <laughs> yeah. car, poor Norman. You know. Yep. It was, uh, I think. Obviously groundbreaking, completely unnerving to people. I think uh, even if they didn't realize on a cognitive level, this is why it's because the character that they were rooting for the entire movie is the killer. And of course, it's got those great Hitchcock uh, touches when when um, 
Norman is in his office there, either checking in Janet Lee or being questioned by uh, Martin Balsam. And they've got the stuffed birds oh, on the yeah. wall and how they're photographed, the shadows, oh, and they yeah. look like they're just about to attack, you know, with their wings spread and everything. Just just little visuals like that. And the way he shoots inside the house oh, yeah. where you never get a chance to see. You think you see a woman because right. you see hair and you see, but you don't really. And it, that's easy to, to say now. Oh, look. But think about audiences back in 1960. They were, as you say, because they were brought along in the film by Hitchcock to be sympathetic to Norman Bates and they're thinking about well that's his mother and then they're at the end there and you flip the chair around and yeah you know and and the music let's not forget the music oh yeah classic oh absolutely maybe maybe, I don't know maybe second or maybe right up there with Jaws is just all you have to hear are like two three notes boom yeah that's the music from Psycho and you're scared yeah yeah so just just an all-time classic 1960 right at the beginning of of the decade and just set the set the bar so high yeah for for the rest of you know, schizophrenia movies, um, any kind of crazed killer type movies. You might want to avoid the other sequels that they eventually <laughs> got around to making for but Psycho. But there's a TV show that I we've not seen, but yeah, I've heard is great. Bates Motel. Motel. And actually, you know, one of my favorite sort of ripoffs from the same decade from the 60s is called Peeping Tom, where it's one of those where, you know, the parent made him crazy kind of a situation. It's a great one. Peeping Tom is great, too. Yeah, so five, five good ones there from the 1960s. But you know what? We could have missed some, and uh, we can count on you to uh, point us out, point out what we might have missed, or maybe some of your favorites uh, from the 1960s. Let us know. We're always up for this on Twitter. Uh, We're at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F on Twitter, so keep the conversation going. And uh, keep the feedback coming, too, on the Golden Spiral Media feedback line. That's 304-837-2278. Or just go to goldenspiralmedia.com, and you can leave us uh, an audio clip. And uh, and if we like it, maybe we'll play it next week. Yeah, one of the fun things about talking about horror movies is because the horror fans love to talk about horror movies. (laughs) And just a heads up, actually, we're going to talk about the best movies of the 1970s next week, and we have a bit of an argument going on between us as to what's going to be number one. So if you have any advanced thoughts about your votes, let us know. From the 1970s, that should be fun. So until then, I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. From MadWolf.com, and this is the Fright Club podcast. Until next week, stay frightful, my friends.